the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Kate Payne. Kate Payne is a is an author and a writer, a freelance writer and a frequent consultant for design, decor, cooking, and crafting publications and sites. Uh, she her new book is called The Hip Girl's Guide to the Kitchen, and she is uh, right here with us. Kate, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine, for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Okay, we're going to be talking about The Hip Girl's Guide to the Kitchen. Uh, you're a DIY guru. What is a DIY guru? <laughs> um, I guess it's just a fancy word for uh, learning how to do things for yourself if you run out of money and you can't buy them any longer or you just are curious about things. And so creating things from, you know, maybe food artisan projects like granola or laundry detergent or something like that. Okay, but we're going to be talking about cooking and how you can be a right, DIY guru. Uh, yeah. And you, you write for, what, AOL? And, you, you know, you are a cooking expert besides giving demonstrations, and uh, we can go on and on with that. But, okay, the new book, The Hip Girl's Guide to the Kitchen. Um, and as I understand it, I mean, one of your concerns is, you know, the way we cook and how we cook also affects our relationship with others and our well-being. And so as a social worker, I'm interested in that, uh, you know, good cooking uh, makes good connections, I guess. So kind of let's start with that premise that, you know, if you take care of yourself and you're concerned about what you eat and how you eat it, you're going to feel better about yourself and have a better relationship with those around you. Is that right? It's true. Um, I found that just just the, <clears throat> the basic idea of cooking at home and and creating time around in a schedule for eating breakfast or eating supper together, whether it's just you and a roommate or you and your family, um, I find that just creating community around food rather than just grabbing a bite, running around um, in our busy lives, you know, carving out 30 minutes for breakfast and, you know, an hour for dinner at night are just these, like, very... uh, connecting type, type things, you know, and then, you know, your regular routine is there. But then, say, having a dinner party and inviting over a handful of friends, it's, it's now not, it's not the norm anymore to do that. So it's a, it's a really fun thing to bring your friends over to your house and, and have a um, gathering where you've created something, and it doesn't have to be elaborate. And but you do, they, as I understand it, you do 98% of the cooking. You're married, your <laughs> wife doesn't do... Any of well, two percent of it, or <laughs> you are the person. No, I say we do. So oh, we. Um, oh, I, I would like to okay. clarify first and foremost that my wife enjoys the sustenance cooking. So, like those three meals a day that we have to eat, that pesky thing that we have to do. 
Um, to me, I like to be, and I am, my role within our family is the special projects coordinator. So unless you count jam, bread, pickles, ice cream, uh, bitters, you know, like really kind of fun but not necessarily um, the sustenance meals, um, if, if you count those projects as meals, which sometimes it's fun to have ice cream for dinner, but um, <laughs> but if you count those as meals, then I do do the, the main meal cooking, but my wife enjoys making those meals, and so it's been a really, uh, and she's been a very uh, great influence on teaching me the rhythms of the kitchen because she goes out of town. Um, she, you know, there are times when I need to step in and do the cooking, um, and so, and, and for instance, when I wrote this book, I took over all the sustenance cooking because I didn't feel like it was honest to tell people, yes, you can cook your meals at home, and if I'm not the one actually doing them amidst my busy schedule. So I took them over. We had a surprising dearth of jam, bread, pickles, and ice cream during that time, <laughs> but, but I, did, um, I did really get a lot out of providing meals for, and continuing the meals throughout the week, you know. It's not well, just, I'm listening like, to you, and, you know, it really sounds, I mean, it sounds idyllic in terms of what you're doing, and the food sounds good. We're talking about, you know, really good foods, and uh, obviously in the book you talk about tips on how to creatively run your kitchen, efficient, healthy, homemade meals. But as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, you know, my experiences and uh, are that, no, who's doing this? I mean, we are the fattest country in the world. Um, you know, I travel a lot, as you do, all over the United States, and I really look at people and what they eat and how they eat and how enormously obese they are, morbidly obese. How does that fit into the hip girl's guide to the kitchen? Well, I think it's just bringing it home, bringing everything home, bringing, you know, like the, the simple act of crafting a nutritional meal from components, you know, color coding, you know, the basics of putting together a meal that has a grain, maybe a meat or another protein, um, some sort of leafiness, some roughage, um, and <clears throat> combining these things all with healthful fats and um, oils and things that also connect the rest of those components together, um, and just showing people, you know, it, cooking dinner at home doesn't have to be creating a two-hour recipe that you found on um, a site that I love to, you know, bop around on, like Gourmet or, you know, like the, the, the beautiful um, cookbooks and all that. But, like, really crafting meals is about combining ingredients, knowing how to boil some rice, putting together simple things that you can cook up um, after you've been at work all day or doing... So boiling, doing baking, things. sautéing, those are easy things to do and much easier and much more healthy than, say, grabbing that takeout when you come home from work. I mean, you don't, like you just said, you don't have to be doing gourmet meals. And maybe that's what people yeah. think. You know, it's going to be a gourmet situation, so I might as well just grab some food at some fast food place, you know, for dinner. But you're right. saying, no, you don't have to. You can eat real food and you can cook it simply and it... Yeah. Not only, yeah. And there are ways to, even, you know, even the tightest of schedules, there are ways to cook larger portions of things, and not, you're not even eating the same exact meal every day. Like, you just use components and recreate those components. All right, give us you know, an example so. of that, because I think that's good. You have families you know, with two kids, three kids, you know, whoever's doing the cooking doesn't want to have to come home and recreate a meal every day. So right. what would be an example of that? So I would say, I mean, one of my favorites is roasting a chicken. You know, stick that thing in. That might be like a weekend project, 
you know, because you have a little more time after, <clears throat> after you know, you're not working on, well, hopefully, like I'm working on the weekend because I'm a freelancer, but you're not working, you know, in the standard time, so you're not cutting an hour of, you know, must have dinner on the table ASAP. But so you roast a chicken, and then you eat that for supper, and then you have leftovers from the chicken, which you can make a soup from, you know, like take the the breast meat or, you know, take the other areas of the chicken that didn't get consumed in dinner and then make a soup from them. Uh, the rice that you made with dinner, throw that in the soup too. Um, use the bones. You know, I'm really into trash, so good trash, not like gross trash, but use the bones to... I, I keep a bag in my freezer, so I just stash um, leftover bones and veggie scraps that I use or that I'm cutting up for meals and, and things. Um, put those in the freezer. Make a stock when that bag is full in the freezer. Um, another, just another simple idea is you put together like you sautéed some meat and you made a pasta and you know you have like kind of like a stir fry dinner. Um, the next night, create and make make extra of that because it's very easy to make um, more rice, more more cut up more veggies and all that. Uh, the next night, add some coconut milk, like some curry powder and. Uh, some stock, and you have like a curry dish that you would buy at, you know, like you get for takeout, and it's like, oh, I'm having an exciting new meal out of something that I just had last night. So it's relatively inexpensive as well. I mean, as you're describing it, you're not adding all, what, what you're adding, very simple kinds of things. You're adding, it becomes a different kind of a flavor, but you're not spending a lot of money. What do you find when you are giving, and I'm calling them workshops, and you're going around and uh, I'm right now probably promoting the book, uh, what do, you know, the response from the audience, do they challenge you? Are they, what, what kinds of things are they saying to you? How, you know, is this possible to do? What kind of a, you know what I'm saying in, in terms of um, that they might find difficult uh, about, say, following yeah. The, yeah, the guide in the book? Well, I think um, I think everyone in their mind has it in their head that it's so difficult to come home and have you know kids and jobs and things, and it's like it's just impossible to to cook food because it just takes so much time. And and I think that we just need to rethink the structure of how it all works. You know that we don't need to spend. Yes, there is some upfront time in, in preparing a meal. You're going to spend about forty five minutes. Um, from putting rice or a grain on. Um, you're going to spend some time sautéing. You might spend some time chopping things up and then baking it. But, you know, if you think about our transit, like in how, how long it takes us to drive around town at 5 p.m. wherever we live or at 5.30, like picking things up, you know, whether it's takeout or, you know, calling. Like people think, oh, convenience is just so convenient. But really, like, there's time and energy involved in even being convenient, quote-unquote. Was there a point in time for you? I mean, have you always been doing this, or was there, was there some kind of a critical mass when you were not, you were driving around doing uh, takeouts as well, or did you always uh, eat healthy and cook in this way? Um, you know, what was it, how did this sort of evolve for you in terms of eating and cooking this way? This came about, um, I have not, I've, I've grown up having most, like, pseudo-homemade meals. You know, my mom was a single working mom, so, you know, but we didn't have a pristine palate, but, it, you know, we had great food that she mostly made 
sort of from scratch here and there. Um, but I didn't grow up with this like kind of paradigm as my guiding force that I could actually do this. And actually, when I graduated from college, I spent a better part of my 20s wasting my groceries because I wasn't very good at this kitchen system, you know, keeping things rotating and moving or even purchasing things in the first place that connected together that would actually equal meals. So I was not good at this stuff. And then, so where did you graduate from college? Where were you? I finished college at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And I studied anthropology, so we were um, similar. If you're a social worker, we have the similar goals. <laughs> <laughs> anthropology, sociology, exactly. Okay, so there you are, graduated, had a pretty good background in terms of eating, but then what? Yeah. But then I uh, moved to Austin, Texas, and lived there for a few years, per- just continued my, you know, not great kitchen system. Uh, learned a lot about other things. I was really into permaculture and gardening and just connecting other areas. But I soon realized that all this stuff is connected. Uh, like all people like us on the earth, you know, everything, like this, this whole home system is connected, which is why I wrote the first book, Hip Girl's Guide to Homemaking. I was like, oh, this seems so stressful and discombobulated. But putting it all together was really where it was at for me. And so... We then moved, and this was all start, starting to come together, but really it all became a critical mass when we moved to Brooklyn. So my wife, my now wife and I moved to Brooklyn so she could go to school at the International Center of Photography. And when we were there, there wasn't really an option to just go buy whatever groceries struck my fancy. Um, we were actually on food stamps for the first year of being there because she was a full-time student and wasn't able to bring in the other half of the income. And so we had a very strict budget. It was like $202 a month, and we had three meals a day each to, to cover from all of that. So it became That would be talent. a can of beans in Brooklyn, 200 <laughs> <laughs> Well, And we did things that I mention in the Hip Girl's Guide to the Kitchen. You know, we joined a food cooperative. We um, shopped for seconds at the farmer's market, you know, things that just weren't the, like, height of the season uh, or the the most beautiful apple on the table, but they, you know, cut off a little piece of bruise and you're good for it. Um, We did a lot of things to keep food prices low, but one of them was just cooking continually because as you you cook one meal and you can propel into the, the next round of meals based on what you have what, what you have before you? What are your groceries? Um, and and it really it really struck me that this is possible for me to change my my ways. And I feel like I wrote this book because I think other people might be convinced, like I was, that I'm no good in the kitchen. And but that too can change. So, like if I can do it, you can do it. Yeah, I think that if I, yeah, that's why I asked you kind of your history because I think you know you have to you can set yourself up as an example, I guess, is, which is what you're saying. You can do it. Yeah. Everybody else can do it as well. Because I think that kind of does stand in the way. I can't. I don't have time for this. I just can't do it. It sounds really good. I know it's healthy, but mm-hmm. it's easier for me to do the fast food. And you just pointed out, not really. You're stuck in traffic, waiting in line. It, it isn't. <laughs> any easier. It's just what you're used to. So kind of changing those habits. Um, n- n- what about when you go around the country? I know it, just before we go on the show, you're on the East Coast now in Massachusetts. Do you find that there are different eating habits? Uh, from? And I assume that you go around the whole country because you know, this is your second book. 
uh, talking to people and and engaging them. So is it different, East Coast, West Coast, South, North? Mm-hmm. Have you found big differences in eating habits? I guess sometimes it's just what meal is celebrated. You know, like I feel like here in, I'm in Northampton, Mass. right now, I feel like breakfasty type things are just really exciting to everyone. There's an exciting array of all things brunchy and breakfasty. Um, but I just, yeah, I think pretty much everywhere across the country, people are at least attempting to just normalize how to how to get those meals in and, you know, maybe the different regional cooking things that are, you know, in the south, uh, the, you know, the southern foods are more, you see those more at, like, the dinner parties and the gatherings, and people host things for me when I come to town. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess... It, it's kind of cool, though, because it's a connection of just everybody's eating similarly, um, especially in trying to be, trying to get nourishing, healthful things in our bodies, you know, like including ferments, um, including like stocks that have, you know, long, like things that we make even from scraps, you get a lot of really great um, minerals and gelatin from the bones if you make your own bone stocks. So it's really neat to just see across the country, like people trying to support local food systems and um, yeah, and I see that food. too. And traveling across the country, you know, uh, w- w- what's the term they use? Um, you know, produce to restaurant. You know, there's a, a, tr- a trend for a restaurant to serve fresh whole foods and coming from local farms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have Farm seen that. But, yeah, but recently, my boyfriend and I, very recently, two weeks ago actually, we just, we took a road trip to Arkansas to uh, Oklahoma. And that was kind of an eye-opener because I found that very different. I mean, we were in, this is an airport, a big airport in Oklahoma City. You know, Oklahoma City has a half a million people. And it was lots of morning, you talk about breakfast, it was morning breakfast. Uh, we wanted to, we had an early flight, wanted to get, just get some scrambled eggs and toast. We went up and down that entire airport, very modern, modern airport. There was nothing to eat but burritos and Doritos and, and you know, heavy, fast oil. We finally found, you know, all the way down at the end of the, you know, gate eight or whatever it was, uh, to uh, some scrambled eggs, which, of course, doused in oil and grease. It was, you know, I'm thinking this is a food desert, but it's not the kind that we're usually talking about. This is a huge airport, um, which really surprised me. I mean, I haven't, uh, you know, and and Oklahoma City was a great city, but um, that's an example, I think, in certain areas of the country, you find that kind of a situation, which is different than, I think, than the East Coast or even the West Coast or even Austin, Texas, where you live. Yeah. Well, I'm always I'm always shocked by airports, like why they trap us in there with such horrible food options, even in a, you know, metropolitan, you know, booming place where you can find, you know, the latest in delicious, nourishing food. Um, you know, like even JFK Airport, you know, you get like kind of, you know, you're just like subpar things. And it's just like, why? This is such a disappointment, you know. Like that has for, to be your next for, book because you're right. <laughs> We're held captive. <laughs> We're held captive in these airports, and yes. you know. And I, I tend to just pack in. You know, I bring nuts, and I bring, you know, I look for something to sort of connect whatever I've brought snack-wise. But you know, it just was 
I was in the Detroit airport for um, some some events in Michigan, and I found one thing to like to connect the nuts and snacks that I had brought. It was I just wanted like some cheese and you know maybe some sort of vegetable, and it I had to search the whole airport to find this little box of. Um, olives, like a little Mediterranean salad, and I just was, like I found it at the far corner, you know, yeah. the gate eight food. <laughs> the gate eight food, so that's the challenge. It really is yeah. the challenge, but of course, what you're saying is, I guess, you really have to, I mean, take a look at the Hip Girl's Guide to the Kitchen, figure out what you're going to bring with you when you travel on the plane. <laughs> yeah, and part of part of my thing is um, th- I have to be extra prepared because I'm gluten-free, So, and I've been gluten-free for eight years. So even before there were delicious things to eat that were gluten-free, I was eating um, without wheat. Um, or Do you have to be gluten-free, or are you saying it's good to be gluten You know, some people, they have, I guess they're allergic. Can you explain that, or is it just good to be gluten-free in general, and why? Well, I don't know if I could speak to, like... I mean, I know that there are lots of benefits to cutting down on... Well, we, eat, we eat, as a society, a ton of gluten, like, in every meal. You know, like, once I went gluten-free, I realized... Every single thing I eat throughout the day has gluten in it, you know? What is gluten? Um, it's the protein in wheat. So it's a, uh, in wheat grains. But so it's not just wheat flour, like wheat, you know, wheat in the field, but it's also in like rye, barley, farro, um, orzo pasta. You know, like it's, it's just in the, um, it's, it's a protein. And so it, it tends to be, um, for some people there's a, that have celiac disease, it actually eats your intestines, so you do not eat gluten because you might do serious damage to your body. Um, other people, like me, have an intolerance or an allergy to it, and I face serious um, consequences, and my body, I, I have all these symptoms, um, which range from headaches to other um, like sharp shooting pains and things happened to me. And as soon as the gluten was fully out of my system, um, when I was first trying this out, my nutritionist <clears throat> put me on this path and all of these symptoms just disappeared. And, and it was things that I was dealing with chronically and I was, pretty, uh, I was pretty impressed by this. And so personally, I remain completely gluten-free, not just like, Oh, that pizza! Pizza looks good. I'm going to go ahead and have that. Like it's it's a definitely like um, as if I'm as if I also have that disease, you know. So it's definitely. I, I've had gluten free pizza. It's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there. I mean, and I part of my introduction to the kitchen was baking gluten free bread because I found it to be really gross what I was getting eight years ago, and. I, it really welcomed me to, the, to, to learning about myself that I'm pretty good in the baking realm. I'm pretty good with these special projects that I, and I actually enjoy them. Um, and so, you know, I make a ton, my bread has four different grains in it. It has brown rice, it has arrowroot, it has um, sweet rice flour, which is the sticky rice that is often in sushi, and, and it has um, millet. So it has an array of grains, like whole ground grains and then other thing, you know, other things to put it together, eggs and butter and molasses. But um, it's, a, it's just been a great 
it's been a great thing to to have real bread that's like shaped like bread um, in a world of dense hockey puck like loaves. <laughs> Kate, if we follow the Hip Girls Guide to the Kitchen, uh, do you think you know maybe without thinking about it too much, and we obviously observe portion control, but we eat the kinds of foods that you are promoting, um, that automatically it will help us to maintain our proper weight, that it will be easier for us to do that if we eat, you know, without repeating, but really following some of the, or following the recipes in your book. Yeah, I think following the methodology of putting together whole ingredient dinners and and lunches and creative breakfasts from what you have grocery-wise, I think definitely um, just switching and shutting out things, you know, around the time I went gluten-free, I just turned off the fast food valve because they're just, you know, there's nothing. I don't want to just get like a weird little hamburger patty with no bun at a place like that. You know, I want to go to a, if I'm going to have a burger without a bun, I'd rather have it at like a nice burger place. Um, so so I you retrain your palate. I, I, I think that's really important. I mean, you, yeah. obviously that's what you're saying. Cause, and, yeah. and you can do that. And once you do that, and let's say you follow the, the guidance in your book in terms of how to eat and eat well, um, the other stuff becomes less appealing. As a matter of fact, even, sure. it, it, it even makes you feel bad if you try and eat it again. Um, yeah. 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 And I, I think one other really important thing is sugar and just moderating sugar um, and realizing how much stuff we eat has sugar in it. Um, I'm not of the, like, death to sugar, you know, like I like to bake just like the next person. Um, and I've found some alternative sugars that I like and that do work to help cut down on sugar. Um, but I think just realizing how much, like, sugar just stores, you know, helps us store fat. So um, I think we really just, in general, just need to assess and evaluate, like, what sugars we're eating. And and it, it's just a little distressing, too, because, the, you know, you don't even see on the food labels how much the recommended, the RDA for sugar doesn't exist because of lobbying and all this. Well, what is it? You're absolutely right. I kind of just look and see, well, it's got sugar, and I sort of do my own assessment, which is based on nothing. Um, and so, what, what is there a recommended sugar that we're supposed to be eating? I, I never thought about that because they there's, do have recommended sodium as salt. Yeah, so there's diet. no the the government won't stand behind this um, because you know there's so many people shoving money in pockets surrounding sugar, um, and most people would discover that you've consumed all of your sugar in the day just at breakfast. Um, if they really did put on that you're really only have to, supposed to have a few teaspoons um, a day of sugar, <laughs> you know, to maintain your body's ability to, like, process and break it all down. So it's a political uh, thing. It's a political thing, and it's really all about the politics, the money, um, yeah. and that's why and we don't know how much sugar we're supposed to be eating every day. Yeah, and I really I address some of that stuff in the book, too, because I just think it's not honest for... You know, people do have agency in what they eat, of course, but, you know, our our officials aren't making it any easier for us to help choose and understand things either. Yeah. Well, that's a whole, and that's another book for you as well, <laughs> The <laughs> Politics of the Hip Girl's Guide to the Kitchen. Um, right. Uh, yeah, and you do cover some of that in the book also. Um, your website, hipgirlshome.com and katepain.net 
our two websites to go to to find out more about Kate, Kate Payne, and her book, The Hip Girl's Guide to the Kitchen. And uh, it's really an easy read. And it's just on the cover of the book, it says, a hit-the-ground running approach to stocking up and cooking delicious, nutritious, and affordable meals. So it's been great having you on the show today, Kate. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate it. And yeah, good luck with the book. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great book. We're going to take a short break. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me is Pete Seat, a former spokesman for President George W. Bush, uh, U.S. Senator Dan Coats and the Indiana Republican Party. Uh, his new book is The War on Millennials, Airing Grievances and Offering Solutions Through the Eyes of America's Next Generation of Leaders. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Pete. Well, thanks for having me, Catherine. All right. That's a big, long title. It really does describe the book, I think. But uh, let's start with who are the millennials? First of all, who are the millennials and why are they in such bad shape? And by the way, you're talking to a baby boomer. You are a millennial. I know that. <laughs> well, so yeah, watch the, it. yeah, you may not like the first uh, chapter of the book in that case, but okay. uh, millennials are the 80 million strong group of Americans born between 1980 and in the year 2000, and as you said, having been born in 1983, I count myself amongst that group. Um, but the title and, and the premise of the book comes simply for the, f- the fact that um, we are, are slated to become prisoners of the past in, in our uh, adulthood moving down the road because of un- 
unprecedented national debt, unsustainable entitlement programs on the fast track to bankruptcy, souring international relations, and a whole host of other obstacles that are in our path. And today, right now, we need champions of the future who are willing to put ideas on the table and achieve measurable results to ensure that we have the same prosperous future and that that flame of prosperity is passed from the baby boomer generation and Generation X to the millennial generation. But Pete, isn't that true of every generation? They always get, you know, each one gets handed mm-hmm. a bad deal of sorts, whether it's the Depression or World War II or World War One or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So is it that qualitatively different for you guys? You know, I, I've talked to, yes, I believe so. I, I've talked to uh, plenty of baby boomer politicians, elected officials uh, in person. You, you hear them out on the stump as well. And they talk about how they're concerned that this, that their generation could be the first that won't uh, pass on a country better than the one they inherited uh, from their parents and grandparents. And it's, it's a real fear out there. And you, you can't mask the fact that we have an over $17 trillion debt. And let's be honest. Boomers won't have to pay for that. It will be millennials who will have to pay that bill, and it will mean fewer opportunities for uh, entrepreneurs and risk-taking in this country as we're uh, cleaning up the mess. And I would also point out very quickly, I'm not the only one who has said this. Boomers themselves, the former governor of my home state, Mitch Daniels, uh, Joel Klein, a, a writer for Time Magazine, and plenty of others have said you know, our generation has not lived up to our billing, and, and we still have a lot to do to make sure that that flame is passed on to the next generation. All right, so what do we do? I mean, it sounds very mm-hmm. grim, uh, rather mm-hmm. depressing, like we've done a really mm-hmm. bad job, although I think we've done a really good job in many, in many other areas, perhaps not the ones you're talking about, but mm-hmm. in terms of civil rights and those kinds of things and women's rights and women's issues, and I think we're going in the right direction. Um, so that's something else. But, okay, so, but as you, as you're describing it, well, uh, the debt is, what did you say, 17 trillion dollar debt it's almost something it's unimaginable but so what do we do what what are the solutions to the the issues that you've just discussed sure well well first things first and this this may sound uh very fanciful but we need to stop uh, fanning the flames of political division you know you've got these political mercenaries who are whispering stage directions from behind the curtain encouraging their bosses, our current elected leaders, aspiring elected leaders, to just throw out sound bites uh, and and argue and debate all the time. Um, if that's not that's not going to fix our problems, sure, it'll get you on television and it'll probably help with some fundraising, but that's not the job. I, I think there's too many people who run for office who view winning the campaign as crossing the finish line. That's, that's the goal. It's winning the campaign. But that's just the beginning of the job of governing. You run but isn't for that office. the nature of politics today? I mean, the nature of the people who run because of the way 
I mean, people who or don't want to run. Let's say good people don't want to run sure. in the Republican Party, even in the Democratic Party, because they don't want to be exposed. They, you know, there's just all sorts of, uh, you know, they're, I mean, just, you know, simply they don't want to have the, uh, be vetted in the way that they're vetted today. And, and so people who perhaps would have run maybe 20 years ago won't do it now because it's just, and so you kind of get, I don't want to say, uh, the quality of the, the politicians, I think, in both parties perhaps is um, not what it was. You don't get the same kind of leadership. I, I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, I, I think there's something to that. I think, I think very <clears throat> a number, if not most, of our elected leaders, and I'll just talk about you know, Washington specifically in Congress, um, come there with... Um, a sense of purpose individually, but as a collective group, they're dysfunctional. Um, there's a, a, a section in the book that I call cut, Cutting the Cost of Public Service. Uh, to your point about, you know, that all we focus on, it seems, is opposition research and tearing down the characters of, of people who run for office. There's a plenty of reasons why that's the case, but I think why millennials are becoming more and more detached and disillusioned from political parties and the political process in general is because of that. That's not what they're interested in. It's not what we are interested in. We want to see ideas and results. And until we do, I think more and more millennials are just going to tune out. When you say tune out, what do you mean? They're just not going to, become, they're not going to get involved in politics? They're not interested? Yeah. They're not, yeah. I mean, look at... Uh, how I believe it was Harvard um, was the most recent poll to show that somewhere in the range of 25%, uh, if not slightly a tick below that, 25% of millennials plan to vote in the midterm election. I mean, this is an election that could very well determine uh, control of the U.S. Senate. It will determine control of the U.S. Senate and what the final two years of Barack Obama's presidency look like. And millennials just aren't interested because it's, it's all about character assassination. It's all about uh, opposition research and who can get into the gutter quicker than the other candidate when we are really looking for, we understand the problems that, that we are facing. Uh, you know, every single poll that comes out about millennials, we have a better and, and um, you know, uh, understanding of what is happening. I mean, I, I throw out the fact that the millennial generation, according to a couple surveys that have come out recently, have been saving more and earlier than every other previous American generation. We get it. We get that we can't wait for the government to do it for us. We get that we have to provide for ourselves individually and for our families. Um, you, but, uh, yeah, I want to. I this I, I'm really surprised to hear Are you saying that millennials are saving more. Um, absolutely. Like, what are they doing to say, I mean, I'm hearing that millennials are coming back and living with their parents because they can't afford, I mean, maybe that's how they're saving, but they don't, they can't can't live in an apartment, you know, they can't afford an apartment or they can't afford to buy a house, so they're coming back and living with their families of origin. But when you say saving, explain that. What do you mean? Yeah. Well, so, you know, there's also stories out there about, oh, millennials aren't, aren't purchasing houses. Okay, for some, that's an affordability factor. But for others, they're just not interested in owning a home. Uh, for instance, myself, I live in an apartment, have 
since I left college in 2005. I've always lived in an apartment. Um, and to me, that's much more comfortable than owning a home. I like being in the city. I like being close to the attractions and being able to, you know, the, the city of Indianapolis is a wonderful place because you can walk everywhere in our downtown. It's very accommodating. Um, you can't necessarily live in a home and have that. Secondly, a lot of millennials like public transportation, and so they won't purchase a car. And that's those are all savings and home insurance and car insurance and the cost of maintaining both that they can then put in a bank account and save for their future. Well, as long as they are taking the money and doing that and not spending it on other things, maybe, you know, things that aren't tangible. I mean, do we know what they, do they actually have bank accounts? I mean, is that... You know, are there statistics that say, okay, they're not buying houses, they're not buying cars, but what are they doing with their money? Yeah, I mean, there's there's survey information out there. I, I unfortunately don't know some of it off the top of my head, but I have been as surprised as you, I'll be honest, <laughs> to see this information and that we're, you know, uh, saving more and at a higher and faster rate than, than previous generations. But I think we learned so much coming of age during the Great Recession we saw what it meant for our, our parents and grandparents to, to watch 401ks get depleted um, and are trying to you know, rebuild those reserves and, and, and provide for their retirement. And we watched it. We watched it happen and said, we're not going to allow that to happen to ourselves, so we're going to make, you know, start earlier and make the right decisions so our future is better. Okay, so you're saving your money. Good. That's number one. Yes. What yes. else are you doing to rectify what we, the baby boomers, have done to destroy the country? <laughs> <laughs> At least you admit it. I appreciate that. No, I'm kidding. Um, but we had fun doing it, really. <laughs> yeah, well, that's part of the problem. <laughs> um, is, you know, what, what's so interesting, uh, I think, about millennials is, yes, we're detaching ourselves from... Uh, political parties, from uh, institutions in general, but are finding avenues to contribute to the world uh, on our own, starting small nonprofits. You know, that I, I know, I, know uh, I have a friend who, who started her own small nonprofit to help build homes in Africa and was able to raise enough money to live in Africa for several years. Uh, and there are plenty of other stories like that around the country of millennials saying, you know what, I'm not going to wait for someone else or something else to do it. I'm going to make it happen on my own. I want to make change in this world, and I'm going to do my part. And when you add all those up, it's, very, it's a very significant impact that we have already had at a very young age in trying to better our world. Well, so you're doing business differently. I think one reason you're able sure. to do that, too, obviously, is the Internet, the digital age. It's easier to start businesses without much capital. Uh-huh. A lot, um, so that makes it easier. You don't need a brick-and-mortar office building to, to start a business. I mean, I think that's all part of it, don't you? Absolutely, and we've, we've certainly, you know, we're, we're technology natives um, as opposed to technology adapters, and we have grown up with, you know, a smartphone in our hand and texting and emailing uh, for the last several years. I remember when I was in high school, uh, as, as antiquated as this might sound, I had a pager, um, you know, kind of clipped to my belt, and my I'm mom was probably the only person who used it, but... <laughs> <laughs> You know, my, 
mom was always paging me to find out where I was, and it's like, you realize I have to find a pay phone in order to call you back. Um, but yeah, we've, we, you know, technology is, is second nature to us, and, and we, we find ways to uh, utilize it to, to achieve our goals. All right, so we've, you've already tackled two of the solutions. Again, obviously it's in more detail in the book, uh, but uh, the war on millennials. But savings, millennials are saving, mm-hmm. are saving uh, new types of businesses, uh, being creative about those. What else? You know, I, I think a big thing, and we're, we're starting to do this here in the Indi- uh, state of Indiana, is working to diversify our economy. And what I mean by that is, you know, for so many years, everyone has been told you have to go to college, that that is, you know, the way to have a comfortable and, and, and prosperous life is to go to college, to get a bachelor's degree, and possibly a master's or doctorate if you choose. But there are so many good-paying jobs that do not require a bachelor's degree. And we have hundreds, if not thousands of them, here in the state of Indiana right now, good-paying technical jobs that require a vocational education. What are those jobs? But, and is, what are those jobs? And is Indiana unique, or is this something that is true of, Many of the states. Oh, this is, it's, it's true around the country. Yeah. that there are there are manufacturing, uh, highly skilled manufacturing jobs available out there, but people who don't possess the skills to do them. I, you know, I, I went to a uh, a factory floor uh, not long ago. It's been a couple years now, I guess, and a lot of what they do it was a uh, they they coiled steel was automated but controlled by individuals sitting at gigantic computers who control the entire process. And it takes a very special skill set to be able to do this. This isn't just you know, moving a mouse around on, on, uh, on your, your, uh, your MacBook or your, your Windows PC. This is highly skilled technical labor jobs that I know, I know people who were better suited for that. They were better suited to repair cars, and to build things, but felt like they had to go to college because that's what society tells you to do. And I I think we need to move away from that mindset and say, you know, pursue what you want to, and here are opportunities to do that. And more and more high schools are, are beefing up their vocational training and education, and I think that's a great, great thing for us moving forward. Yeah, I agree with you, and I see there is a push for that. This, I, I think uh, um, and community colleges are doing that. I mean, the push for, you know, mm-hmm. you can go to a two-year college. You don't have to go to a four-year college and get a BA, but you can be trained in, in, in ways that you just described. Um, so there has to be a, an attitude change for people to really feel that it is important and also know that, that those jobs are available. I think the media is always sort of, there's nothing out there unless you get a college degree, and you know you won't be able to find a job. And manufacturing has gone down the tubes, and that's what young people hear, which obviously is not a good thing because, as you're saying, there are jobs out there, and there are training programs for that as well. Right, and, and you know what we did here, I think, is a, a, a great program uh, called Indiana Work Councils, and they're bringing together educators, business leaders. Uh, you know, folks from the manufacturing sector and, and people that are running schools and saying, okay, how can we all work together? 
to ensure that that Hoosier students, in, students in Indiana, are college and or career ready. Whether they choose to go to college, that's their choice, or if they choose to immediately jump into a uh, you know technically skilled labor job after. We want to make sure that they are prepared and ready to go, and let's make it happen. And they're already um, building new curriculum programs to make sure that's the case. What are some of the other solutions? I mean, you've named, what, three mm-hmm. of them already. Um, and I know there's, there's a lot, obviously, to cover in your book, and I'll mention the book again so listeners <laughs> can go and, and buy it on bookstores everywhere online, The War on Millennials. So, um what are some of the other solutions? I mean, I, I, and I have to say, you know, I am a baby boomer, which I told you, but I have three children who are two Gen Xs and one millennial. So some of this is, you know, as you're talking, is ringing true. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, let's go. What else? What else can you guys do to rectify? Right. Well, of situation? course, I don't want to give it all away. It's, well, no, you know, in the book. A, yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, one thing I would say real quick um, Millennials, just so everyone knows, spelled with two N's, sorry, two L's and two N's, because um, I'd, I'd spell it wrong myself sometimes. So if you are looking for the book out there, I uh, want to make sure you spell it right. Um, well, one thing that I, that I really um, focus on in the book uh, is, is the power of tweaking. And that's to say we, we, we have, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but there is a perception uh, in our country that anything less than a big idea is not worth the time of day. Um, but I think that we, we can't allow the perception of complexity uh, to prevent us from achieving acts of simplicity. Uh, give you know, us an example. Sure. Yeah, yeah, because we don't have to be a Steve Jobs necessarily, but we still can accomplish something. Well, look, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Steve Jobs because there He's actually an example in the book. He himself was a tweaker. You know, let's be honest, smartphones were already out there. He didn't create smartphones. He took smart, the, the idea of smartphones and slightly made a tweak to it, made it a touchscreen, and said, here's an iPhone. He just improved what was already in the marketplace. And every time there's been a new version of an iPhone, it's nothing more than a tweak of the previous one. But people get excited. It's a larger screen, it's faster, the processor is better, it's thinner, what have you. But it's improving the product. They recognize that it's, you know, the first time the iPhone came out, it wasn't the best product. It was going to be improved. And I think government can learn a lot from that. Um, the example uh, in the book that's, that's detailed is Social Security. And, you know, it is a complex program. And I think in many ways we have allowed the complexity of it um, and the, the vastness of this program to prevent us from making relatively minor tweaks to it that can add years of solvency to the program. There's a wonderful calculator um, out there by the uh, Council, Council for a Responsible Budget that you can, you can go. It's interactive. You can play around with different solutions uh, for Social Security, whether it's means testing or, or raising the cap on taxable wages, um, et cetera. There's a whole ho- there's you know 30 or 40 different things you can do, and you can play around with them in different combinations to try and improve the solvency of the program. 
And I almost want to send that link to everyone in Congress and say, here, play around with this. Here's some relatively easy things we can do. That well, you know, why don't program. you? I would say when you're to- as you were telling me this or talking to us, that's what I would do. The politicians know about this, and if they don't, why don't you tell them? Well, I've told as many as I, as I can, and, and, you know, as I've been running around promoting the book, um, you know, I've, I've encouraged them to check it out. Because I'm like, look, we've, you know, it's really about tweaking these programs and, and fixing them and making them better. And, you know, I, I'm a theater guy. I was trained in theater. I was a theater major in college. And I was taught a very simple premise in, in improvisational theater. You're taught yes and. You're on the stage, and when someone says, I'm a doctor, you say yes and. You run with it. You continue the scene. But everyone in Washington seems to be more interested in no, but, and discrediting and discounting ideas that are on the table. I think if we just accept what we have and make it better, we will be better off. Tweaking. We have to tweak, not overhaul. That's the word that comes to kind of the 180 to me from that. Uh, Yes, it's always, it's it's either or we have to change the entire system we have, you know, and I think that's been our attitude. I would agree with you for the past thirty years at least. So, tweaking, tweaking, tweaking—that's um, a great concept. Yeah, I, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I hope it's it's, it's, it's one that it uh, that people yeah. take to heart. Yeah. So, and, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, so you're and theater background, which is interesting. Uh, that's a whole other question. We only actually have a, a couple minutes left, so maybe I won't get mm-hmm. into that. But um, I just want to mention, because we only have a couple minutes, um, thewaronmillennials.com is the website to go to. And the, the title of the book is The War on Millennials, Airing Grievances and Offering Solutions Through the Eyes of America's Next Generation of Leaders. And I think, you know what, Pete, I think the word solutions... Very often, and I think you've been talking about this throughout the interview, it, we, we respond with saying, no, 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 we're not going to do it. But nobody actually talks about solutions or wants to focus on that. What are the solutions, which is what your book does. So, um, Absolutely. I, yeah. I, I hope that more, more of our elected officials and those who aspire to be um, talk about solutions. And, you know, I, I'm reminded of a Milton Friedman quote that I'll just paraphrase, which is essentially, um, you know, what seems politically impossible today um, will down the road become politically inevitable. And it will be the ideas that have already been on the table for maybe decades that will be the ideas that are ultimately implemented. And, you know, we get discouraged in the moment that something we throw out there may not happen, but maybe 10 years down the road it will, and, and it will be worth it in the end. A great quote to end with, and thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Pete Seat, The War on Millennials. We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. 
Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.